Well, it is officially Christmas season. It's sometimes really difficult on the first Sunday of Advent to feel like it's Christmas because like three days ago was Thanksgiving, you know, and, and there's many of you that are like really trying to push off the, the Christmas. You won't really want to have your Thanksgiving, but Christmas is officially here now. This is the first Sunday of Advent, and as we've been saying, we're going to be walking together as a church, as a community, as a family, preparing ourselves for Christmas Eve where we will celebrate that Christ has indeed come as we sing that peace has come, that hope has come, that joy has come, that love has come. And this is a wonderful time of year. I love the Christmas season. I love the Advent season. I've even been trying, some of you I've talked to out there, I've been trying to start this new thing saying Merry Advent, you know. It's not really catching on yet, but I'm really trying. But I love it, right? You walk around the city and it's lit up with all these Christmas lights and there's an energy there and it's exciting. It's even more energetic than it normally is just because the lights and it, there's, a, there's a sense in the air of excitement. You know, we're, we're praying and we're crossing our fingers in Miami for cooler weather. Uh, it, it happened a few days ago. It was like cold in the morning, at least for me. It was like, you know, 68 degrees. And I was like, okay, jacket, pants, socks, not going outside. But you know, we're praying that it gets cooler weather. We could break out those jackets that we only get to wear maybe once a year. Some of you are like, I can drink hot chocolate, but I got to turn my air down to 65, you know. Art Basel is coming in a couple weeks, which is always an exciting time in Miami. And it's, it's exciting to see the, the city um, come together and surround good art. There's so many different things happening. It's a wonderful time of year. Many of you are listening to music and watching Elf for the 200th time you know, you don't watch it the rest of the year because if you told people, maybe you do, but that would be weird. People would judge you. But you can listen to it as much as you want. You can watch all the movies you want right now that are about Christmas. But it's not only wonderful, but it's hectic too, right? It's a hectic time of year. You're sitting there thinking to yourself, okay, I'm going to have so many invites to different, you know, office parties and different friends gatherings and social events. And how in the world am I going to cut down on my Netflix queue if I have all these events to go to? But you're excited you're invited to events because it makes you feel special. And so you're excited about that, but it's hectic. And then, you know, you have to buy gifts for people, right? And this is really hectic because you're thinking to yourself, like, I don't want to spend too much, but I don't want to spend too little, and I want to make sure I get something that they like because I can totally tell when they're faking it when I get like, oh, thanks, you know? Like, like you're, like, trying to stress out. And then you just had Black Friday, which makes it even more hectic, right? Any of you go to the mall or go to the online mall called Amazon? Did you go there for Black Friday, and you're sitting to yourself, and, and you're stressed out because you're like, do I need light bulbs that are voice commanded to make my house green or yellow? I don't know, but I bought them. You know, I didn't, but I'm saying maybe you did. You're, you're stressed out about gift giving. You know, there's, there's going to be these parties where there's going to be white elephant parties or secret Santa or whatever people call them, where you bring a gift, you put it under the tree, and everybody picks, and you can trade, and you can, you know, steal it from each other. And that's stressful. Here's why. You never know whether people are going to give real gifts or funny gifts. Have you felt this right? You're like, do I get a funny gift? And then everyone else was serious, and you're like, uh, I got Sharknado for you, you know? Or you give her a serious gift, and people are like, what are you, this is supposed to be fun. It's like stressful, right? It's a hectic time of year. It's a stressful time of year, but it's a wonderful time of year. But, but below all of that, right, below the festivities and the parties and the lights, and you're going to get a Christmas tree, and you're going to put it up, and watching Elf and listening to the music and all the different things that surround this season, there's an underlying theme that I think is felt by everybody, and that there's this sense of hope. You, you sense that 
in the Christmas and Advent season, right? When you're a kid, especially, you're, you have this hope that you're going to get that one gift, right? You made the list for Santa. You, you have, you're under no illusion that you're going to get every gift, but there's one that you underlined that you start a few times, you circled it, you got a highlighter, you never even used one, but you use a highlighter on it. You're like, I really hope I get this one gift. Oftentimes, December also brings in this sense of hope for what lies ahead, right? Because you're, you're getting ready for not only Christmas, but a few days after that's going to come New Year's, and it's going to come a new year. And you're, you're thinking and reflecting on 2017, and you're thinking about the successes, and you're thinking about the, the failures, and the things that you've been praying for, and they haven't come to pass yet the things that feel hopeless, and you're trying to look forward with 2018 with optimism and with hope. You have this desire for hope that those things in your life that you really want to see come to take shape and, and come to be healed or for you to be rescued from. You have this desire to hope that it's actually going to happen in 2018. There's this underlying sense of hope. And I, I've always, during the Christmas season, had this kind of feeling of reflection, as you look on your life and you think about what's happened, you think about what's going to happen, I think it's like in the air, right? You sense it. And there's this question that every single person asks, maybe not always consciously, but you sense it. And that's like, is the Christmas message real? Because we've commercialized it. We have all these great things. We have all these parties, all these movies, all this music, all this stuff happening. But all that has come to pass because there's a story about this child being born in a no-name town Bethlehem to no-name parents, surrounded by animals, and that child is God in the flesh. And that child in his life changed the course of the world, didn't just change the course of Jerusalem and its religious leaders and Israel, but it changed the course of the world, and we are here today because of that day that Christ was born, that God came to earth to rescue, to redeem his people. He visited with us. So there's this question, like, is, is that real? Is that story true? So during the season of Advent, we're going to be walking through four songs that you find in Scripture. Um, they're songs or they're declarations. Uh, here, the one we're looking at tonight is also called a prophecy there are these songs and declarations by different figures in the story, different characters that are having this experience surrounding the Christmas season, and they speak about four of the main characteristics of who God is and what Christmas is all about, hope, love, joy, and peace. And tonight, we're going to be looking at hope. And this song is called Zechariah's Song that Tilke read, or it's called Zechariah's Prophecy. And Zechariah was a priest. He was a priest, and his wife's was Elizabeth. And Elizabeth and Zechariah have a son. They're going to have a son. And the son's name is John. And that's John the Baptist, the very famous character in the Gospels who is called to prepare the way for Christ. He's going to go into the wilderness. He's going to go from town to town to town. He's going to tell people that God has come to earth to redeem his people. And you need to prepare yourself. You need to begin to trust in him. You need to follow after him because hope has come. And this is what happens in, in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life when John is born, and we see that carry out in John's life. But it's interesting what happens here with Zechariah. Right before he sings this song, in the latter part of Luke 1, he has been praying for a son for a long time, and it has felt hopeless. He didn't think he was going to have a son. He is older. His wife is older. 
And he has this encounter with an angel. This is a repeated theme that you see in scripture. He has this encounter with an angel and the angel comes to him and he says, listen, God has heard you and he's gonna answer your prayers. He's gonna be merciful, he's gonna be faithful and he's gonna bring you a son. And Zechariah being a priest, right, his full-time job is to, to teach and to train and to encourage people to trust in God and to follow after God. And Zechariah hears from an angel that God has answered his promise in an area where he felt hopeless, and here's Zechariah's response. Yeah, right. You see, clergy are prone to doubt too. We're all prone to doubt, whether you're a pastor, a priest, a businessman, a businesswoman. Regardless of who you are, you are prone to doubt, and Zechariah here doubts. He says, come on, I'm older My wife is older. And so the angel says this. The angel says, okay, you are not going to be able to speak until you see God fulfill this promise to you. And that is about the worst punishment ever for a pastor or a priest to say you cannot speak for a period of time. I would 100% die. There's no way I would survive. So Zechariah is unable to speak from this moment on until his son is born. So nine plus months, Zechariah has been unable to communicate. He can't talk. He can't speak. And then his son is born, and he's finally been released from this. He's finally able to speak after all of this time. And these are his first words, the first things that he says after this long period of time of not being able to speak. He says this in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's been unable to speak without hesitation by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says that God has visited with us and he has redeemed his people. He doesn't say, finally, God, that was a little dramatic, right? Why did I have to wait all this time? He doesn't go back to Elizabeth and to everyone else and say, let me tell you what happened, why I wasn't able to communicate. He doesn't say, listen, remember four months ago, you guys were talking about this thing? Here's what I think about it. No, he opens up his mouth and the first words that he says in this really powerful and emotional moment is he says that God has visited with us, with his people, and he has come to redeem his people. You see, these things go hand in hand, and Zechariah is going to begin to sing this song. He's going to declare this prophecy to Elizabeth, his wife. He's going to declare something over his son, John, to all of those in the room, and to us here as we read it as well. And he wants us to see something. He wants us to see who God is, that he has, in fact, visited his people, and he has, in fact, come to redeem his people, and those things go together. See, he wants from the very beginning for you to understand this. God does not redeem from a distance. God is not out there, and we're over here, and he somehow redeems us and forgives us from a distance. No, God gets in our mess. That's the Christmas story, right, that Christ has come. God came, and he was made flesh. He has come to visit us, and Zechariah begins to to flesh this out, and he says, I want to take you back. I want to take you all the way back to the Old Testament and show you how this is who God has been and who he is since the beginning, and so he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he's visited and redeemed his people, and, verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of of his holy prophets from old. So he's saying, listen, God has been active from the beginning. 
Not just now, God has been active since David. He's about to bring up Abraham in a moment. All the way back from Abraham, God has been active. He has been visiting his people. And he has spoken through the prophets who he visited as well. And what he has been speaking is that he has a plan of salvation. He is going to redeem his people. He's going to release his people from their bondage, from their sin, from all the things that are causing them to feel hopeless. He is coming to redeem his people. And here's what he says has been spoken. Verse 71, he says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So he's saying, listen, God is not redeemed from a distance. He has been active and he has engaged with his people since the beginning. He has come to visit with us, and his mission is to redeem us. And there are three things that he, in this section from 71 to 75 verses, he wants you to understand about who God is. And it says that God is merciful, he's faithful, and he brings deliverance. You know, first he speaks about God's mercy, and I love how he says it here. He says in verse 72 that God has come to show mercy. Right? Mercy is active, it is not passive. You cannot have a disposition of mercy. You can't, you know, like, I'm a very merciful person, but I don't ever do anything about it. Mercy is active. He's saying that God has shown mercy, meaning he's been engaged, he's got into the mess of many different people to bring redemption. He's active in the process. And which means that God has been motivated by his compassion and his love to in fact show mercy. So God has shown mercy to his people, and he's faithful. He wants us to understand that he is faithful. Imagine how Zechariah is feeling in this moment, right? He is holding God's mercy in his hands as he's holding his son that he never thought he would have. He is, he is coming to feel and to experience that God is, in fact, merciful, that he shows mercy, that he is engaged in his midst, as he has been engaged in the midst of all of those who have followed after him and all of those who will follow after him in the future, he has shown mercy and he is faithful and he's experiencing God's faithfulness to him too as he holds his son. But what he wants you to see is that God has shown his mercy and he's been faithful and he draws you all the way back to Abraham. The beginning of Genesis, where God makes this promise with Abraham, he makes a covenant, this binding oath and he wants you to understand God's faithfulness, not only to Abraham, but to all those who would come after him. And so you have to understand what God promised to Abraham. God promised three things I want to highlight. The first is this. God came to Abraham and he made a covenant with him, a promise. And the first was that he would multiply his family. If you've read the story before and you know this encounter that God and Abraham have together, God tells Abraham that he is going to multiply his family. That he's going to make his family like the stars in the sky, too numerous to count. See, this promise to Abraham is not only that Abraham is going to have a lot of kids. It's not simply God coming to Abraham and saying, you're going to have a lot of children. He's saying that all of those that come from your line, that are going to be considered a part of your family, are going to be like the stars in the sky. You can't even fathom how many people are going to come after you. 
And you see all throughout Scripture, and you see in the life of Abraham, that what makes someone a part of Abraham's lineage is not primarily blood, but it's that they have faith. Faith like Abraham had, where he trusted in God, and he left everything, and he followed after God. So he's saying, I'm going to multiply your family, and the people that are going to be part of your family are going to be those that trust in faith in me, just like you did. And he says, not only am I going to multiply your family, but he says to Abraham that I'm going to show you, I'm going to pursue you your entire life and show you mercy and goodness. I'm going to be for you. He says, I'm going to be your God. And you, Abraham, and all those that come after you, you're going to be my people. He says, I'm going to be for you. I'm going to show you mercy. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to reveal my goodness to you. And I'm going to bring good gifts to you. And that this wasn't only true in the life of Abraham, but this is true of everyone who comes after, everyone who trusts in faith in God is a part of Abraham's family, and you can know and trust that God is for you. Have you ever thought about that? You are a part of God's family. You are a part of the oldest family in the history of the world, and God is for you. He has promised to show mercy to you. He has promised to reveal his goodness to you, to be faithful to you. And then lastly, he says to Abraham, I'm not only going to multiply your family, I'm not only going to be for you, but he says that from you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's going to be blessings, good gifts, undeserved favor that's going to be given out to those that come after you, Abraham, that are like you, that trust in faith in me. And Zechariah is experiencing this, right, in this moment with his son in his arms. He is holding God's blessing that he never thought he would have. It's a true miracle. And he's recognizing that this promise that was made to Abraham thousands of years before is still true, that he is part of God's family, that God is for him, is showing him mercy, has been faithful to him, and is blessing him with this son, and he wants everybody around to know that God is not indifferent, that God listens, that he's engaged and involved, and he cares for his people, and he's going to now direct your focus. He doesn't want you just to say that God is gonna be merciful to you, that God is gonna be faithful to you, but he wants you to understand that the aim of God's mercy and his faithfulness is your deliverance. That God is a God of deliverance, he's a God of salvation, and he brings deliverance. And here, Zechariah speaks of a specific deliverance. He speaks about how God is going to deliver them uh, from all of those who hate and all of their enemies. Right, this is certainly true that God does show up in your life. And if God is for you, he's going to show up in your life in very tangible and real ways. And he can deliver you from those that hate you. And he can deliver you from your enemies. Even though what we see in the life of Christ is that the gospel switches that around and calls us to love our enemies, but God does show up in your life and will bring present and physical deliverance. And for a first century Jew, this was a very common prayer, right? The Roman government was oppressing them, and they were hated. They had many enemies, and they've been praying that God would deliver them from their suffering. But Zechariah here, though he speaks about that, and he speaks about how God is faithful, and he's merciful, and he's going to deliver them from their present suffering, and he holds on to that with hope, he doesn't want you to focus simply on the fact that God comes to redeem 
and to, to rescue and deliver you from physical suffering, but he wants you to see that there's a more significant thing that God comes to deliver you from, and that is spiritual suffering. He comes to deliver you spiritually. That, look at verse 74. This is the end of God's deliverance, right? He may come to redeem and he may come to deliver you from the physical suffering that you're facing and the trials and the tribulation, the stress and the anxiety and the regret and the fear and all the things that you're going through in your life. That's the means. But the end is verse 74. He says that you might serve God without fear. See, physical deliverance, being redeemed from your present struggles and stress and anxiety always leads to spiritual deliverance. It is to result in worship. The desire for God, see, when he comes around you and when he delivers you from something that you've been praying for and you felt was hopeless and you're asking God to be faithful and to show up and to be merciful and to deliver you from these things, it's so that you might not only be freed of that ailment and that suffering and that trial because God is loving and he is good to you, but also that you might be delivered spiritually, that you might come to worship him. Have you experienced that before? Right, God is uniquely present in brokenness. He is uniquely present when you're desperate. And he shows up and he delivers his people because he's faithful and he's merciful and he's loving. And that results in worship. It results in a spiritual deliverance. There's a, a website that's called I Am Second. Who's, who's been to IamSecond.com before? It's a website. If you've never been there, it's awesome. It's this website that chronicles all these stories of people that have encountered God and have been delivered. And there's, a, there's this constant theme that runs throughout many of the stories, and it's this. I had this present suffering. I had this thing that was just on my shoulders, this burden that I was carrying, and God delivered me from it. And it resulted in my spiritual deliverance. I came to really see truth. I came to trust in Christ, and now I live a life of worship. One of the more compelling stories on the website for me is uh, the story of Brian Welch. He is the lead guitarist of Korn. Any Korn fans in the room back in the day? Some of you are like, oh, I don't want to, like, it's okay. You know, like, I was real into Korn, guys, okay? Freak on a Leash. Remember that video with the bullet? You know, I, th I think it won video of the year on TRL. Remember TRL? The good old days. So Brian Welch was a lead guitarist in Korn. And he, he talks about his story and he tells his story and he says, listen, I, I had everything, right? Korn was huge. One of the top rock bands in the world. One video of the year, touring all over the world, making all types of money, fame, fortune, everything. He says, listen, I was empty. And I was so empty that I really got wrapped up in the drug scene. He had all these effects. He lost the mother of his child to drugs. And he, he vowed that he would stop, he would quit, because he, he wanted to, to stop doing drugs because he wanted to care for his child, but he couldn't. He talks about how he would be sitting there and he'd, he'd put his child to sleep and then he'd get high on drugs. And he felt horrible about himself. And he started talking with his friend and his friend was a Christian. His friend started invited him to church and he said, well, I'm gonna go, maybe that will help. Maybe something will happen there. He went a few Sundays in a row and he still struggled. He began to trust, he began to believe a little bit more in the gospel and, and who God is and 
redemption and deliverance in Christ, but he could not stop. He says one night, he's sitting there and his child is there and the child went to sleep and and he, he takes a whole bunch of drugs. He says he remembers praying this very, very simple prayer. He says, he said, God, take these drugs from me. He said that night, he was overwhelmed with a sense of God's love and his goodness and his faithfulness. And the next morning, he threw all of his drugs out. He quit the band Corn, And then he went on to write a whole bunch of books and speaking, encouraging other people that are struggling with addiction, that are going through pain and through suffering, that there is deliverance found in Christ. It's amazing. There's this um, great quote by Ray Pritchard, a Christian author. He says this. He says, sometimes the world around us seems empty. We may feel entirely alone, but now and then suddenly, when we least expect it, when we're, we've almost given up hope, when we're tired or bored or fearful or disgruntled, God breaks through and the angels start to sing. It has happened in his life in a very powerful way. God broke through and delivered him from his present suffering. And it changed him spiritually, delivered him spiritually, and his life became a life of worship. And here's the coolest part of his story. Years later, I think it was in 2014, he decided to rejoin the band Corn, And everybody began to question him. Like, oh, did you, are you done with the Jesus thing now? You're going back, you want to get the money again, you, you missed the fame, you missed the fortune, you missed the lifestyle. So people were interviewing him and asking him, you know, like, why, why are you going back to corn? Here's what he says. He says, there are people in there that are dealing with pain and confusion, and I'm going to go grab them. His life had been changed. God met him in the midst of his suffering where he felt hopeless, and he delivered him, physically delivered him, and it changed him. He was spiritually delivered, and his life became a life of worship to where now his life is about going and grabbing people like him that are in darkness and helping them to come to find and see the light that is Christ, that there is hope. And Zechariah is recalling the same thing. He wants you to see the beauty of who God is, that God has visited with his people, that his mission is to redeem his people, that he loves his people, that he is faithful and he is merciful, and God does deliver He brings physical deliverance, but most of all, he brings spiritual deliverance. And he directs his focus here next as he looks at his son, and he looks at John, and he says this in verse 76. He says, and you, child, you're going to be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And this proves true in in John the Baptist's life. He's going to go forward. He's going to go into the wilderness and go town to town to town. He's going to tell people this very simple message. God has come. The one is coming who is greater than I, and I want you to see, I want you to understand that he has come to redeem you. He has come to serve you. He has come to show mercy. He has come to be faithful to God's promises that date all the way back to Abraham and to all the other covenants that God has made with his people. He is coming to rescue, and there is hope. So Zechariah looks at his son John, and he tells him, this is going to be your calling. And then he declares this. He says, John, you will, in verse 77... Give knowledge of salvation to his people. You're going to speak about the salvation that is coming in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
He says, John, there's a spiritual awakening that is coming. And you're going to prepare people for that. You're going to be an ambassador to help people see that the sun is rising. That there is light in the midst of all of this darkness. And God is going to use you, John, to help people see truth. That it might be illuminated to them. That they may come out of darkness to see Christ who is going to be born on Christmas Eve because God has come to visit us to redeem his people. He has been faithful and he is going to show mercy. He boils down to this. He says to his son, John, John, you are going to bring a message of hope to all people as they eagerly await Christ. He's saying this. You're going to go to people and you're going to say, Something very simple. Trust in Jesus and find deliverance. J.I. Packer, a theologian, I love this. He says that the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory, because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later, he might hang on a cross. See, this is Zechariah's song. This is his message, and this is the message of Christmas, that there is hope, that hope has come, that God has visited with us, and he has provided a way of redemption through Christ. You see, Christ didn't come like a typical king. A typical king would have been born in a palace with all this fanfare, and a typical king would have declared and demanded your worship, or you die. Christ came poor, surrounded by animals, with no fanfare at all, to parents that really didn't matter in the social scene. But he was, in fact, the king of kings. And he was born not to demand your worship, but he came to serve you, to show his faithfulness and his love and his mercy to his people so that you might worship him, that you might respond to who he is with worship, This is the message of hope in Christmas. See, the Christmas message moves you to ask this question. Do I hope in Christ? Do I really believe it? Do I really believe that 2,000 plus years ago, God came in the flesh? And he came to deliver. He came to show mercy. God was faithful and he's still faithful. Do I hope in Christ? Because when you do, the result is worship. Because you not only have present hope for what you're facing now, but you have eternal hope. Because God has not only promised to step in the gap and to come to your aid through the things that you're struggling with physically, because he loves you and he's a good father, though not always in your timing, but he has promised that there is eternal hope. You can worship him without fear. I was thinking this week, you know, what does it mean to hope in Christ? How does that look in your everyday life? When you hope in Christ, three things happen. You're able to persevere, you're able to be positive, and you're able to find power. Here's why. If you hope in Christ, here's what you're saying. You're saying to yourself and to others that Christ is in control of your life, both your eternal life and your present life. He is in control of your life. He is driving. And so if if Christ is driving your life, don't you think you have every right to feel confident about where he's taking you? To be bold, to stand up to the things that you're facing. 
to know that God has good things planned ahead, right? There's maybe the most famous one, maybe the most memorized verse besides John 3.16 is Romans 8.28. That God works good for those that love him. This is what Zechariah is wanting you to, to, to understand. That God loves his people and he shows mercy to his people and he is faithful and he will deliver. And when you hope in that, it brings positivity and it brings perseverance and it brings power into your life. Right? If that is true and if you've experienced that, then why would you stop praying? Why would you doubt? Right? Zechariah is wanting you to know, he's wanting me to know as well. Like, don't doubt God. So easy to do that. Like, God, this is hopeless. There's no way this is going to happen. Don't doubt. Because God loves you, and he will show mercy, and he will deliver, and he will be faithful. This is the message of Christmas, that there is hope because Christ has come. So